Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. I'm happy to welcome Kurt Carews back to the show. Kurt is the president and CEO of Tab Bank, and we are still here at Money 2020. And Kurt, I want to hear all about why you're here and what you're seeing. But the Tab Bank story is a it's a good one, one I like to tell, but I maybe like even more hearing from you. So, you know, remind our listeners what what is the story about Tab Bank? How how'd you get to where you are today? Oh, great. Well, thanks, JP. It's great being back with you again. Um, yeah, Tab Bank is an interesting story. So um, I haven't run across another bank that has quite the unique story that Tab does. We're 23 years old this year. Is actually, I think, 23 years old this month. And the bank was originally formed as an industrial loan charter bank uh, by a company that had a bunch of travel centers, truck stops across the country. And the idea was truck drivers have difficulty banking. You know, they're on the road. If you live in Salt Lake and you're delivering a load in North Carolina, how, how do you then get paid for that load and how do you buy fuel and all those kinds of things? So, you know, back in 98, 99, the bank was formed and basically uh, putting ATMs and fax machines in truck stops, a truck driver could stop by, uh, take their bill of lading, fax it into the bank. We would load a, pre- a card uh, and they could use that card to go out and buy fuel and they go out and, and pick up the next load. And, you know, so the I like to say, you know, the Tab Bank was doing mobile banking before the mobile phone really could enable it. Right. And from that beginning, as things evolved, eventually that 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 truck stop chain was sold off to another company, merged into another company and Tab stood on its own. And so there was a natural progression from where we were. Uh, We've never had a branch in our history. We've always done business over the Internet or through fax machines. And so it was natural for us to kind of pursue this digital banking kind of a environment. So we started that path in digital conversion probably seven, eight years ago. And, you know, now from that, we really today, we still serve a lot of truck drivers. That's our core. That's a community. And, you know, we are, in my mind, we're a community bank whose community exists all over the United States and is a fundamental part of of supporting the U.S. economy. You know, we couldn't live without truckers. Um, but they are their unique community, right? And so instead of the, the people in my neighborhood and the people I know, you know, down the street or, or around from the playground or my kids' school, you know, our community really for Tab Bank exists with the unique truck drivers and their problem set. So that's half our business. And then we've, over the last few years, evolved into partnering with fintechs and really with a focus on, uh, you know, small business for us directly. And then through fintechs, we serve consumers. And we have six, soon to be seven partnerships, deep partnerships with fintechs. And we use that really to take our bank model. And then each of these fintechs serve different constituencies and such. And I think as we kind of move along, that's the future of where we see it going and how Tab Bank's going to play. We're going to be a provider that really supports and gives the banking infrastructure to other players that are serving unique communities and or unique unique uh, product sets. 
Well, it is a great origin story. And like I said, I, I like telling it myself as I talk to other banks about, look, just being a smaller version of uh, Chase isn't going to make it, right? Understanding who your customer really is and, and how to put the right collection of products and services around what their unique needs are is really what the path uh, yeah. looks like. Yeah, um, as a matter of fact, uh, sorry to interrupt, but uh, you said that because our chairman years ago, our former chairman, um, you know, we were, I was trying to get approval to invest in our first, you know, modern data platform. And he's like, well, I don't understand why we're going to spend this money because we'll never, you'll, you can't compete with Chase. And I, and I was kind of taken aback. I was like, well, wait, the idea is not to compete with Chase. It's to just fill in all the spaces that they don't serve well. Right. 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 Um, and how big is the bank these days? We're about a billion two in assets. Yeah, uh, continuing to grow. Continuing to grow. But yeah. at that size, there aren't a lot of banks your size here at Money 2020. So why are you here? What what are you looking for? Yeah, so, you know, we as we continue to evolve and we see, um, you know, things moving along this pathway where this, the size of the bank, well, let me, let me back up and say, used to, everybody focuses a lot on scale, right? Size and scale. And certainly in the banking industry, we've been talking about it for decades. You know, I've unfortunately been in banking for a long, long, long time, many decades. And, and we've always had these conversations of you can't succeed without scale, right? And we've seen the consolidations and the biggest banks get bigger and bigger and bigger. And, you know, they continue to try to be all things to everybody. Well, the, the unique thing that happened in the last decade, 15 years, is that, you know, technology has enabled small banks now to provide unique and bespoke services using technology to lower their cost of delivery, to do all these other things. And, and all of a sudden, you know, small and nimble now potentially is a giant slayer. Uh, not that we're going to, again, go compete with Chase, but there's so much space that big players don't do well course all the fintechs here see that as well and so together you know i think the future of banking isn't going to be how big you are it's going to be how well you can partner and how quickly you can do it well i, I agree with that and i when i think about scale i think about relevant scale right there are pieces of the business that need scale and there's different ways to get scale through external partnerships and part mm -hmm. you're a, one of the very active members of the alloy labs alliance the way banks are, are working together um but I also agree that um, unless you're really one of those that already kind of won the scale game, um, it's going to be pretty hard to win from here on out. And you yeah. really should focus on the customer intimacy. And that's, you know, what you've focused on. Yeah. Um, so, so you talk about the future of banking. What's the future of Tab Bank? And what are the kinds of things that you're looking at here at Monday 2020? Yeah. So I think, you know, what? so, so probably can't talk about it without talking about banking as a service, right? Because, and, and um, you know, as we've talked before, it, it is a buzzword, it's hot, and so everybody's in banking as a service, you know, in some some way, what does that really mean? Um, and, and I'm not sure I wanna sit here and try to put my own definition out there, but I'll tell you how Tab Bank views it. And I think, you know, there's, a, there's an analogy to, um, you know, uh, the last, 10 years, say, when, when traditional banks were trying to go digital, right? And, and the pattern that we saw was we're going to stand up a digital bank next to our, our traditional bank, right? right? Well, what inevitably happened was the digital bank and the traditional bank are trying to serve the same customer, 
Well, the, the business model is completely different. And, you know, so the profits made at the traditional bank, if you're going to go digital, right, the whole idea is to lower the cost, which means lowering the revenue to the bank in their traditional model. So they would compete, right, politics, internal fights, and, you know, how many digital banks were stood up, did a great job, and then were shut down, Right. right. I mean, there's a lot of names we can throw out. So what's interesting to me today is because we're a bank that we consider ourselves now a digital bank. We have, but we do it with legacy cores in the background. We built a middleware that allows us to serve customers in a digital way. So we pull all the data out, put it in one place. We can move it at speed. Um, and then our digital interface, right, is on our on mobile phones. And, you know, we're... we're, we're um, partnering with, you know, leading edge tech companies to provide that. Um, so, so for us, we still have that legacy infrastructure, but we don't have the legacy business model. And so we're standing up a digital bank, but what we're standing up is a digital bass bank, right? And so the idea is that digital banks not, not really set up to solely serve our customers, it's set up to serve fintech's customers. And so when you, there's lots of platforms um, out there, you know, uh, Technosis and Mambu and Q2, et cetera, that have modern c- c- cloud architecture that's not quite ready to do all the things I needed to do for my traditional business. So I'm not ready to rip in place, but is perfectly suited for the models that the fintechs have, right? And so as they build a platform and a system of record, you know, we're gonna we're gonna then build a digital bank that serves fintechs. And that's, that's kind of really our main focus of being here this year. I mean, over, the, over the, the years of coming to Money 2020, it's been something different every year, but that's where we are. And that's kind of what we're, we're building for the future. You know, it's interesting what you just said. It, it, it calls to mind a conversation I had earlier today, and, and to your point that banking as a service, BAS is a little bit of a buzzword right now, means different things to different people. And it's funny, you came up with the same thing I uh, said just earlier today around, it was the same thing around digital banks or neobanks. Um, you know, that was, there's a flavor, not quite of a month, but about a three-year cycle, right? There's mm-hmm. about a three-year cycle of something is the hottest buzzword and everybody has to pursue it. And unfortunately, about 80% of the people don't seem to really understand why you would want to do any given one of those strategies or to your point, how that impacts your existing business model, the decisions you would make about resource allocation and the technology that you would use and, and all of that. But, you know, clearly you're, you're thinking about this pretty long term that um, it, 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 I guess maybe one more thing I would add, just the fact that you're digital um, you talked about the banks that have gone, right? The, the come and gone, the neobanks, the, the fact that you're a neobank doesn't mean you win. Um, no. and, and I think the flip side of that is, okay, if, you, if you're a bank and what you've recognized about banking as a service is we have a bank charter and fintechs don't. And there are a lot of fintechs out there who need some element of a bank charter, whether it's card issuance or you know, deposit gathering tools or whatever it is. But the mere fact that you're a bank doesn't mean you win in the bass world either, right? No, not at all. I right. mean, you know, for us, uh, I think a lot of um, fintechs are attracted to a bank that's under $10 billion, right? They want that Durban exemption so that they can get that revenue model. Right. Um, so the, that, the that, that makes it More easy. favorable interchange rates. Right. right. More favorable. So it makes it us an attractive potential partner. Um, but, 
But yeah, you don't necessarily win. As as you go into this partnership, you know, if you're an old banker, right, like us, right, it's like you think about risk management and you think about, um, you know, um, diversity of revenue sources, diversity of of credit risk, diversity of, you know, all those things. Um, And so as you go into these models, the fintechs are very focused on solving one unique problem, typically, right? Right. Um, As bankers, you realize that it may work, it may not. Right. And so as we're beginning this partnership or as we're moving forward with a partnership, we we also want to to also have multiple partners that, you know, that we uh, leverage our bank charter with. And 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 so that we can we can kind of serve a a broad set of, of consumers and constituencies. Right. Not all in with one. And that requires a whole different way of thinking. I mean, I worked at a bank, you know, decades ago where I sat in the lobby as a senior commercial lender with a beautiful hand-carved oak desk and I had a phone under my desk without a dial pad on it and I would pick it up and it would ring I I hate to even say because I don't want anybody this isn't my (laughs) words this is what it was back then the secretarial pool on the mezzanine Uh and you would have to say you know get me such and such on the phone and then the CFO of a publicly traded company would march down to the bank and sit in the chair next to your desk and do your banking. Right. Right. Um, and so this whole world of, you know, now moving towards how do we go where the customer is, you know, where they are in where, not just physically, but in their financial journey and, you know, whatever they're doing and how do we find a way to do that transaction at the point of transaction. And that's a really interesting thing, right? Yeah, uh, for sure. So is there anything in particular that you've seen this week that um, is really intriguing for you, either along those lines, or is there any new thoughts coming to mind as you're seeing some of the technology here? Well, you know, I don't think I've seen a whole lot of um, technology at this event that's surprised me, right? Because, I mean, we've been sitting locked up for a long time, and so... You know, we all get to, we have time to read and explore and see what's going on out there. But I see a maturity level in in, in how people are approaching and then the, the um, depth of some of these uh, technology players and platforms and fintechs where they're really starting to, to mature. And so it's interesting to see that. And then the only thing that is, I mean, it's not new, right? It's been around for years, but the whole uh, crypto and, and EFT world and and um, you know all the digital assets, blockchain is, and DeFi, blockchain, DeFi, all of that has reached a point where it's time for the banks to really take it seriously and move in. And there's a lot of players here that I think are going to be the enablers, right? Yeah, it's definitely reaching. Um, it, it there's still plenty of wild wild west in that space. Yep. Uh, but there's some real grown ups here talking to you know real life financial institutions too. Yeah, so it'll be inter- interesting to see how those use cases continue to develop. Yeah, you you always talk about following the customer, right, or or serving the customer, putting the customer first, right. And I think that's true. You know, I mean, for so for instance, uh, we're we're partner partnered with um, uh, a company called Bumped, right? And so we're launching a checking account product in January that basically uh, with your debit card swipe, and this is the interesting thing to me about it is with your debit card swipe, um, instead of cash back, you get shares in in an ETF, right? In a fund. 
mm. suck fund. And not only you have that, but they have retailers and other publicly traded companies that if you swipe with them, you'll get 2% back, say, instead of 1%. Complete differentiator. But the thing I love about it is, um, you know, the customers, you know, they aspire, because we serve the underserved, generally speaking. The customers aspire to have access to those things that they don't think are within their reach. And one of those things, you know, is owning stock in a company, right? And so this is a way for, for you know, um, the underbanked and, and the paycheck to paycheck crowd to start actually, you know, experiencing that world of stock ownership. And I think crypto, all of those things as well, you know, um, a, a lot of the community out there that is in so much need, they see that as their opportunity to finally win against the system, right? And so if the customer wants crypto or if they want, you know, uh, to, uh, you know to go into that world, then, you know, if we're going to be the stewards of their financial well-being and their financial, we have to go there too, right? Well, that's right. Well, what else? Anything else we should talk about that's uh, on your mind or that you've seen this week? Well, I, I, you know, there's so much, right? Isn't this an overwhelming experience? It's yeah. like you walk around Definitely. the rooms upstairs and I, can't, I don't even I look around. It's like, whew, where do you start? So, nah, you know, I mean, I think that's a lot, isn't it, that we yeah. just talked about? So, it is. Yeah. Well, always great to see you and uh, good good to be seeing anybody at uh, this point. In, it is in, great in to be our lives, out, right? right? Um, but uh, I'm glad to get your kind of unique perspective on this as a community bank and um, always pleasure yeah. having you on the show. Thanks again, JP. Thanks. See you soon. The way we move money is changing. We want to send money in real time to the other side of the world. We want everything in one place, integrated, seamless, and on our devices. Embedded, fast, standardized, frictionless, and secure. This is our financial future. Technology is advancing at a blistering pace, and it's causing clients to ask for more from institutions in the capital markets. In this season, we discuss changing stakeholder demands. ESG, banking and payments as a service in the cloud, and how technology innovations such as AI, machine learning, robotic process automation, and more might hold the answer. Is the world's technology up to the challenge? Are we? This show is sponsored by FIS. Find financial futures on your favorite podcasting app. FIS, advancing the way the world pays banks and invests. With inflation hitting a new 30-year high, everyone's scrambling to find new ways to protect their hard-earned cash. Because if you don't act soon, inflation could turn your cash into trash. If you have 100000 to invest right now, you may be wondering where to invest it. And some financial experts are suggesting alternative assets like art. Larry Fink, CEO of BlackRock, called contemporary art the world's greatest store of wealth today. Here's why. When inflation is above 3%, like it is right now, contemporary art prices average a real return of 23%, which is six times better than the S&P 500 during those same periods. And art has almost no correlation to public equities. Now you can invest in high-end art without spending a fortune, thanks to Masterworks. They're the investment platform worth over a billion dollars that lets you invest in multi-million dollar paintings just like stocks. Early investors already saw a 32% annualized return in 2020. No wonder over 250,000 investors have already signed up. And we've partnered with Masterworks to get Breaking Banks listeners 
VIP passes to skip to the front of the line. Just go to masterworks.io slash breaking banks for priority access. That's masterworks.io slash breaking banks. I'll see you there. See important disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. We continue at Money 2020 now with Roger Gu and Rebecca Sheehan of Emburse. Uh, so you've just made a big announcement. Tell us about that. Thanks, JP. Yes, we did. We are thrilled to announce that we are now partnered with SVB, who can now easily issue and manage virtual cards for our mutual customers through the Emburse card dashboard. So it's a really exciting announcement. Um, really, what we're hearing from banks is that competing for customers is getting harder and harder. Um, and there is growth in all types of spend, not only T&E and invoice spend, but what we call long tail spend. So spend that was historically done by procurement folks or centralized buyers. And um, banks really need to be able to help capture that spend. So um, th there's a need for uh, this, this partnership grew out of the need for technology to be able to help banks like SVB be able to um, better compete for customers, um, retain control, grow their share of wallet, and really um, simplify purchase reconciliation. So we're thrilled to be partnered with the folks at SVB to bring this to market. Now, is, is that your first bank partnership or do you, you partnered with other banks? Uh, SVB is our first bank partnership, uh, but we are trying to be an open platform, right? We don't want to, um, you know, we have inverse cards today that we issue for clients that, you know, they want additional controls on the cards. But a lot of our clients, it be it the SVB clients or, or Chase clients or, or BOA clients, you know, they like their existing bank partner. They like the rewards that they get. They like the lounge access, all the other perks that they get for all the treasury management services from the back end. But they do want some of the more integrated UX. They want the newer technologies, real-time alerts, uh, real-time, or even no reconciliation required expense reporting. And so that's where our partnership model and this open banking model uh, really comes into play, where we can uh, really work with a number of different banks to uh, enable their customers and, and the basic average users, right? We're at this conference, how many expenses are you going to have to submit here? Right. Uh, we want that to be uh, extremely minimal experience for the user. That's ultimately that's what it's about. Right, and, and you know, this is a recurring theme that we've been um, exploring this week. Um, the level of complexity when you're talking about business um, payments and business processes is so much higher, right? It's not just uh, getting the money from point A to point B, as, as someone else on the show said. And that part's pr pretty much been solved already, right? It's all those other things that happen before approving the payment or, or reconciling the payment and processing all of that. So so talk a little bit about what are the pain points that you're seeing in the, in the ones specifically that, that you're addressing with, with your product? So we find that, you know, with a lot of these employee expenses, like our software initially was, okay, you spend something, you have to submit an expense report, you have to add some notes to it, what it was for. Um, but like a lot of these expenses today, especially with SaaS and recurring expenses, you, you don't need to have the user manually input all that data, certainly not each and every single time. If right. there was a pre-approval associated with that, if there's an invoice associated with that, Technology should be, we should use the technology to really simplify the user experience. Right. So 
that's ultimately, you know, it, it is a lot of fancy front end uh, that the user sees, but behind it, it's so much more in regards to the back end to make sure that the user experience is really as simple as possible. Um, we want it so that, I mean, like no one likes doing expenses and, and no one likes submitting uh, invoices or reconciliation. So that's what we're really trying to, uh, to really just simplify. Uh, and then with, you know, a bank like SVB, they have their clients are are very complex. They they'll have employees, they'll have contractors, they'll have um, candidates that come in for recruitment. It doesn't make sense to give them access to uh, a standard car. It doesn't give them access, or, or doesn't uh, make sense to perhaps give them um, an expense account. So it's just easier to issue a virtual card that they can use and spend and not have to worry about anymore. And I would add to that that the an important nuance here is that. Traditionally, expense and spend was managed after the fact. And so by issuing virtual cards, there is you have the ability to proactively manage spend. So by having an employee request a card in advance for a certain trip, a certain expense, or for a certain period of time, you're enabling a company to proactively manage that spend before it even happens. And what are some of the other advantages of virtual card? I mean, some are easy to imagine, but but I think there's some beyond you know not having to wait for plastic to be printed and all of that. What what are the advantages of, of using that as a vehicle? So I think there's actually very little distinction with uh, the use between virtual cards and, and physical cards very often. So I load my virtual card into um, my Apple Pay wallet, and for 90-plus percent of my transactions, I'm able to use just Apple Pay. The only complication now is these days sometimes a few restaurants won't accept it. Or it's a little bit annoying when I have to because I'm wearing the mask and it uses the the, the face ID, so it's a little more right. annoying there. Right, right. Uh, but for most my, my day to day expenses, especially because you know I don't go to the office as much these days, um, th there's very little in terms of the differences between a physical and a virtual card. We find that virtual cards are just much more flexible uh, when it comes to online expenses. Obviously, um, you can issue a card for that expires after a certain project you can issue a card to a temporary contractor uh, and you can issue a card for one-time vendors and it's just a lot simpler experience uh, in issuing these virtual cards than using a static physical card uh, uh, number so so talk about how you got to this point what, what, what was the kind of original vision of you know what was happening in the space and the the, the pain points and the opportunities to to create some new solutions so certainly, and there's a lot of uh, entrants in the space that are really trying to replace the existing bank cards. Mm -hmm. um, so we started off with that solution as well. But after my cards company, which was then known as Inverse, which was acquired by now <laughs> Inverse, um, the clientele that we were serving ranged not only from like tiny startups, but to companies that have 10,000, 50,000 employees. And there we weren't going to realistically say, hey, company A, like, you know, rip up your 5,000 corporate cards and use our cards in instead. Like we would, we, th that's not impossible, right? We can't replicate any of the treasury management services or any of the backend services or even compete on that much of the economics uh, against the bank, nor would we want to. And so when, as we're serving these larger clients and enterprise clients and even, you know, decent sized corporate clients, they liked the uh, existing banking partnerships that they had and the, like the cards that they have, but they wanted just more. They, they saw what was being offered by Imburse cards. They saw what 
you know, Brex, Ramp, and Divi were offering uh, in regards to real-time uh, controls. And they were telling the banks, hey, we want this too. And, and you know, Silicon Valley Bank and, and certainly a lot of other banks see that. And so that's where this naturally came from. Um, it, was a, it was a desire to better meet the needs of our mutual clients within the space. So where does the product roadmap go from here? What, 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 what's the next frontier? So now what we're seeing is, is on twofold. Like one is we're seeing the blurred lines, as Rebecca mentioned earlier, between spend and, and expense. So we want to continue with that um, and help clients, you know, for folks that want to enable their employees to purchase LinkedIn or um, Zendesk or whatever it is to have those expenses happen on their corporate card which traditionally didn't happen. Like we want to be able to have analytics and be able to support these recurring purchases and capture more and more of the spend. Um, we want to do this because, well, yes, because I'm interchanged, but more so we want to help the clients have a better visual representation of what are they spending on today? What are they spending on right this second across all their vendors and get better data and analytics in regarding uh, their spend, and hopefully, you know, be able to reduce that spend across the entire company. Um, second, you know, we want to work with our banking partners to do even more. So beyond maybe uh, just virtual cards, but you know, other things would be you know physical cards. Certainly, uh, more in the T and E space, and uh, very much so um, help with the B two B payments and and bring more virtual card transactions uh, and digitalized transactions in general to that space for efficiency reasons. Well, give us an idea of uh, where Emburse is as a company, you know, in terms of traction and size and funding and all of that. So Emburse today has about 16,000 clients. Uh, we are actually um, represent several different business units, several couple, several couple brands. So there's Certify, Abacus, uh, Chrome River, Captio, and Exonia. And so each of those BUs represents essentially, it's dedicated towards a certain segment size, right? Abacus tends to be more uh, startups and, and smaller corporates. Chrome River serves a number of large enterprises with 10,000 to 75,000 employees. So each of those is a little bit, it's very much custom for that segment size and for the industry. And I think that's where we really specialize against some of our competitors. We have about 850 employees today, uh, and we are spread out now throughout the United States, but mostly based out of Portland, Maine, and Los Angeles. Um, we are entirely backed by K1 Investments, so we're not uh, VC-funded. Um, we are striving towards you know, profitable growth. So uh, we, have a, we have a pretty... A global reach, and you know, we're really trying to determine our product road roadmap and our expansion needs based on the conversations that we're having with our banks partners today, as well as um, clients across all segments. And what brings you here to Money Twenty Twenty? Are you looking for partners, um, you know, bank partners, technology partners? What? Why are you here? Uh, yeah, so that's a great question. We are looking for more bank partners, of course. Uh, we are also looking for uh, other distribution channels. Um, so we think that you know, cards, expense, travel uh, certainly um, makes a lot of sense for our folks to. We want to augment the services with additional data. We want to augment the services with uh, some of the the providers here. We, we, I met a vendor 
that says that they can fine-tune some of the controls on our cards beyond just MCC to very detailed MID data, which was I thought was very interesting. What's MID data? So um, MID is merchant ID data. Hmm. So perhaps you want to restrict a card that can only be used at restaurants. and But you also want to allow for things like Uber Eats. You also want to allow for things like Grubhub. And sometimes Uber Eats might be classified as taxi and limousine service as a merchant category code, mm-hmm. which is, of course, not correct. right? So if you give a card to someone that they can use for restaurants, you want to be able to them to be able to take out, to, to get these uh, services like, like Uber. So you can add the MID, the merchant ID of Uber Eats, so that you don't have to add taxis on, in addition to So that. you're able to give uh, finer tuning on the controls. For, for exactly. Fine-tuned controls. And we can also look for, uh, you know, we can also blacklist for say, that we don't want folks to be able to use these cards as certain merchants, or maybe it's a competitor or something like that. Okay, cool. Well, what else should we know that uh, we haven't asked you yet? Um, I think in general, like we, this is just a, a first step as we tr- look to expand uh, our footprint regarding payments. So we process bi- tens of billions of dollars a year in expenses, but we actually touch very little in regarding the uh, payments of that. Um, our clients are asking for more of that because you know, they want to be able to see the, the data. Uh, a lot more clear. So nowadays it takes, what, three days for the settlement data or card transactions to actually hit our systems. So they want more real time. Uh, they also want more, um, they, they, they want us to do more integrations with uh, additional banking partners and as well as, you know, a different travel management software services. And we're seeing, like during COVID, certainly we saw uh, a huge drop in within travel, but nowadays uh, we are seeing that certainly pick back up. I mean, we're here in person in Vegas. Right. Um, you know, we want to be able to reinvest in the travel segment as uh, the travel recovers more and more in 2022. Great. And I would add to that that in Burst, really our mission is to humanize work, and really by that we mean making work not feel so much like work, particularly when it comes to administrative tasks. And so you'll see that focus on employee experience and ease of use really woven through all of our different solutions from our travel solutions all the way through to our payment solutions. So that's a that's a critical mission that we're on. Great. Well, good luck on the rest of the journey and uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, JP. Hello, listeners. I'm Brett King, the host of Breaking Banks. Together, myself and Dr. Richard Petty have recently released our latest best-selling book, The Rise of Techno-Socialism. We look at how inequality, artificial intelligence, and climate change are going to shape our world moving forward. During the pandemic, the wealth of the world's billionaires ballooned. The richest 1% added $1.6 trillion to their wealth, meaning that they own more wealth than the bottom 90% of Americans today. Unemployment skyrocketed during the pandemic, but artificial intelligence could disrupt up to 80% of the jobs today. These new industries we are creating will face labor shortages because we aren't training our students with the right skills. By 2050, we'll need to produce 70% more food to feed the 9 billion inhabitants of the planet. But we lost 40% of our farmland to erosion and pollution in the last 50 years. 
by 2050, 570 global cities face inundation from sea rise. Miami, Guangzhou, New York, Calcutta, and Shanghai are just the top five cities. If you want to know more about the solutions to these problems, check out The Rise of Techno-Socialism, our latest best-selling book. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or go to riseoftechnosocialism.com to find out more. Welcome to the future. Here with Philip Ashley Klein from uh, FinLink, F-I-N-L-Y-N-C. So, Philip, tell us about uh, FinLink. What, what do you guys do? Why are you here at Money Twenty Twenty? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a big question. I think where I'd start is, you know, I was just just chatting to someone before, and I was saying, you know, so much value has been uh, created in consumer uh, SME uh, financial services. You know, so so many so many billions of value. And, you know, now as a consumer, and even in the SME world now, you have very much instant, seamless connection to your money. You know, there's so many ways to, to deal with your money. But more money lives at the corporation level. You know, the Walmarts, the Sodys, the Microsofts of, of the world. And this is really a global uh, problem to solve, not uh, regional, as we've seen. Uh, you know, many companies really solve sort of a country or regional type uh, uh, problem. So what we really believe and we're already seeing is that corporate financial services will go the same way as consumer and SME. And we're very much just at the beginning of that. And that's really at Finlink where we're trying to do something quite quite big, which is really transform global corporate financial services. And I can uh, unpack that a little more as we uh, as we go. Yeah, well, first of all, we agree with the premise um, that I, I think we still have a long way to go on the consumer side, but it's maturing. And there are a lot of people here doing similar things. Uh, I have noticed this year, um, we, we are putting a little bit of a special focus on uh, small business and commercial applications. And we're seeing more this year than we've ever seen before. But I agree. I think we're still in the early stages. So, yeah, how, how are you attacking this problem? Well, for, first of all, what are the you know, top one or two or three pain points that you, mm. that you are trying to address? Yeah, well, if you sort of think uh, sort of the analog to the consumer is, you know, the office of the, the CFO, the treasurer, the, the finance professionals, and um, just incredibly archaic. I mean, they don't know where their cash is. They have very limited cash visibility. In tens of hundreds of millions of dollars of trapped cash, uh, they send payments in files. They don't know where the payments are till weeks later when a vendor calls them up and says, where's my money? You know, they're financing invoices and sending manual documents. So as you sort of see the the transformation we've seen in consumer from you know the days where we used to get a bank statement in the mail. You know, now it's you open an app and everything's instant. Corporate world is not in the, is not there yet. I mean they're very much still in a bank statement. They receive bank statements, they have to reconcile them, they see their cash visibility as part of a ledger. There are no applications to instantly open and see where your money is to manage your money. It doesn't exist. And really that is what we are doing at Finlink. Well, it's, it's kind of like the pre-PFM days of the consumer, right? Exactly. Uh, and a lot of those pipes haven't been built yet. Yep. And a lot of those systems aren't talking to one another, right? They're all individually. So um, how far along are you in the process? Yes, I mean, we've aggregated really all sort of global banking institutions, but not just banks, really starting into the fund management space, cards, uh, market infrastructure providers. You know, these corporations have 50, 100 banks uh, globally, and then they also connect into, like I said, 
uh, you know, asset managers, fund managers, uh, credit card companies, etc. So uh, there is no sort of let's connect three banks and a consumer and you're good, you have everything. This is the, the, the sort of magnitude and the sophistication is much bigger. So we've now connected pretty much all the banks that have APIs built globally, aggregated those into a, a into a, you know a, a one point, and then we've built embedded applications. So really, big difference between I think consumer and uh, corporates is this consumer world you can have these companies like a plaid or, or an mx who can provide an api right. for fintech companies to build on it doesn't really work like this in the corporate world because corporations have existing infrastructure they have very um stringent security concerns they have you know monolithic systems systems of record so it doesn't work like it does in the consumer world and we sort of really saw this early on as open banking was really hitting corporations but there was virtually zero adoption option. Besides real-time payments at e-commerce companies, there was zero adoption of these banks' uh, APIs. Because what you would have is, you know, a treasury salesperson going to the CFO, or I don't know, of a Sony, and saying, do you want to see real-time visibility of your balances in an instant? Because at the moment, they're receiving files of bank statements from 100 different uh, banks. And they would say, of course, I want this. Give it to me. And it would be a 200-page word spec. It will go to IT. IT would come back three months later and say, well, this is a year project. And this is one API from one bank. As I said, you know, these, uh, these corporations have 100 banks and they, they want 20, 50 different API, different types of functionality from their banks. So, and all the APIs are different. Exactly, yeah. And there is real difference as well in the corporate world is if you think of P PSD2 in Europe, you know, this is, this is a standard. Right. You're, uh, US, we've seen something a bit different. Uh, we're sort of screen scraping and backing into APIs and, and Asia as well. Uh, but the corporate level, there's no regulation driving standards. So the banks have each built out a completely different standard. And what's actually happened is that standard has become a competitive advantage. So the banks don't want to share these standards. And now there's so many APIs being built by so many banks, there is no way to create a standard. So what we have done... Is anybody driving for that? First of all, from the regulatory side, is, is there a movement in the early stages for a PSD2 for commercial? I mean, there's always institutions that will, will talk about these things, but... It's just in completely impractical now. Yeah. It would be impossible. And this is why at Finley we took a very different approach, which was technology-led. And we said, build what you want. We'll take it and we'll create the standard. And that's what we've done. So we have harmonized and aggregated all these different standards across all these offerings uh, from banks and fund managers, you know, everything from getting real-time uh, transaction visibility. Like, you're paid in real-time now as a company. You want visibility in real-time. You know, to and everything to trade uh, finance, like invoice financing, getting that information out of your system in real time to your banks from media uh, financing to cross border payment visibility. You send a payment, uh, I don't know, from the US to Singapore, you have no idea where that payment is, what it costs you, how long it's going to take. And now you can track that payment like a FedEx tracker in real time. So it's quite transformational now, sort of what's possible, uh, you know, what we've enabled essentially. So you're taking on that role that um, look, nobody's gonna come in and make them standardized, so you're just gonna take all the mess and uh, put some order to it and present it out to the corporations. Exactly, yeah. And then you can present that out in a few different ways. So you can provide that, that data, that multi-bank real-time data, and that corporation can decide to build off of that and build what they want or integrate it into their systems, or we've built embedded applications ourselves. So you can embed them, plug and play in existing systems. I think, you know, sort of difference again in consumers, you, know, you download an app on your phone and you're live. 
you know, in the corporate world, this big, you know, all this uh, archaic technology that's been around the last 20 years, yeah, it's two-year implementations, three-year implementations, it's millions of dollars. And now you have an API you can embed. You don't need to do this. If you can build the embedded application, you can really go live in a matter of weeks with hours of effort. And there is no professional service projects that go on uh, forever anymore. And this is what also we're really trying to change. What has been the most difficult thing you've had to tackle so far? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I would say, you know, the biggest challenge would be on the bank side because, you know, at the end of the day, fundamentally, we're building off of banks opening up. So the speed at which they open up and the quality at which they build these offerings is, you know, that restricts, you know, sort of the growth of the entire market. So what's what we've done is we've tried to accelerate that. So as well as becoming essentially the global standard for this, we're advising banks. So we're really helping them build these APIs. So you have, you know, banks who are coming to the table now who want to start building and they want to leapfrog. They don't want to go through all the pitfalls and pain that other banks have gone through to build these standards. And because we've seen the best in class from all the different banks and aggregated this, we can actually offer that advice now to banks and help them just leapfrog to what is best in class as quickly as possible. Are you getting into some of the mid-size or smaller banks that don't even have the APIs yet, um, or are you still playing with the, the pretty big multinationals at this point? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, sort of take a step back, and it's kind of like this uh, two markets for APIs. So there's the this sort of public open banking market, and then there's these premium APIs, which are really sort of the... Uh, behind closed doors. So these aren't on the bank's website for anyone to come and grab. This is, like I said, it's like a competitive advantage spec. So they're not just out there publicizing them. You've really got to have clients that are, are asking for these uh, APIs. So what you've seen is, you know, I don't know, say 30, 40, 50 of the biggest banks around the world have got some offerings, uh, some API offerings. Now you're looking at the next tier down. And that's where we see now these banks are realizing they need to start building this. Because you know, what we've seen even with customers is they have moved business, payment business, to banks that have the technology when other banks are behind. Because why, you know, why are you waiting um, for this bank to get live? Could be another six months when you can have real-time cash visibility now and invest that money now and get those returns today. So it's quite an exciting shift we're actually seeing in the industry is that move uh, for, for corporations actually moving business based on bank technology alone. Well, you, you come to this with a background in capital markets and trading. I mean, is that part of what led you here or is this unrelated to your, your prior background? Yeah, I think it's quite a unique uh, story. So I actually founded the business with my brother, Peter, and he's based in Singapore. So, you know, he'd been there about 10 years. I've been in the U.S. about 10 years. And he also sat on the corporate side. So he had implemented cash management, treasury, bank connectivity into many of the Fortune 500. And I'd sat on the bank side and I'd done uh, this world of transaction banking and treasury, but also I'd spent some time in wealth and consumer and I'd seen the transformation there. So I think us coming together with a kind of global perspective and from both sides of the problem, we saw very early on uh, kind of what I was saying, which is this is going to go the same way as consumer SME and it's just the beginning. And if we can really build this platform, that we can be the player and the standard in the global market for uh, for corporate to financial services connectivity. So what brings you here to Money 2020? Are you presenting, announcing, <laughs> looking for partners, funders? Um, I think it's a great place to network. I think, you know, fundamentally it's it's 
a place where you can meet a lot of uh, people and explore a lot of opportunity in a short space space of time. Uh, I think it's nice to be at somewhere that's uh, a buzzing conference like this after a couple of years, I suppose, off the off the circuit. Um, but yeah, I've been uh, quite surprised. You know, there's a lot of new, uh, lot of new companies in this consumer space. You know, like, like you were saying, JP. You know, more and more applications and more, more and more apps. So, yeah, I just find it very interesting. You know, you come here and you see this uh, continued development in this consumer SME space, but virtually no one in this corporate market, which is a bigger market. And this is really, uh, and I think it's, uh, you know, you were mentioning to me before Peter Thiel, and it's like, you know, his uh, his framework of you sort of x-axis, uh, you know, boring to exciting, y-axis from simple to complex. And you, know, you see a lot of, I think, startups in the sort of simple, exciting world, right? But this sort of more boring, well, I say more esoteric uh, kind of complex world, you see a lot less, and this is really where we sit. But this is where the opportunities are. You know, this is where 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 le least people really can see what the opportunity is, and the and the bigger markets are. Well, I think there are bigger leaps to be made, right? We're we're at the stage on the consumer side where there's a lot of incremental improvement that's going on. Yep. There is a you know huge bell curve distribution of adoption, uh, certainly from the financial institutions, and I think somewhat from the consumers, although. You know, consumers are kind of leading that. And then, ironically, when we think about the corporate market, um, you know, treasurers and CFOs and CEOs, they're consumers too, yeah. right? They're, they're experiencing a rapid increase over the last decade um, of connectivity and, you know, availability of, you know, all kinds of things uh, through a, a touch of an icon on their phone. And to your point, you know, they step into the office on Monday morning <laughs> and, and it, you know, there's, uh, you know, envelopes full of paper or, or mm. maybe, you know, a, a, some CSV files, right, yeah. at, at best. And so being able to kind of put some order around that and give them mm. uh, the power to be able to manage that uh, real time across multiple banks, multiple currencies. Um, th th there's a lot to tackle there yep. for sure. Yeah. I mean, and they've sort of historically be seen, been seen as cost centers and I, you know, they're not, I mean, there's a lot of revenue to be, uh, to be made. It's, you know, if we have real time data, Hey, shipping goods immediately, increasing credit limits immediately, allowing customers to buy more goods, uh, yeah, investing immediately, investing smarter, better for better returns. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of uh, uplift here that's just been sitting on the table. You know, this lagged uh, sort of lag of working capital, but having that in real time and efficient, I mean, it really is quite revolutionary. And I think the market is starting to understand that they can actually get that, and it, it, it is possible. And it's it's very exciting time. Yeah. Well, what, what did I not ask you you you're hoping uh, we could talk about today? Oh, wow. Um, I think you've asked me some great questions. Well, good. Well, how can people find out more about Finlink? Yeah, I mean, uh, website will be at the, uh, the AFP, the Association for Financial Professionals Conference in uh, D.C., early November. I think this is a, a really big one for the CFOs and treasurers, and we're really excited about that. We've got a lot going on. So, yeah, I'd love to meet people there. Great. Well, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for the time. Appreciate it. That's it for this week. If you like the show, make sure to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform or share it with a friend or share it on social media. We'll see you again next week with more Breaking Banks.